G'day, it's Russell Howcroft here. I'm the Chief Creative Officer of the Sayers Group and a founding partner. At Sayers, we believe all business, all good business, starts with a fantastic conversation. So we thought, well, let's create a podcast and let's call it Conversations. We hope you enjoy this one. We've got a conversation happening with Professor, the Honourable, the Honourable, Barry Jones, AC, um, Barry Jones, of course, in a way doesn't need an introduction. I'm sure that that's true. But there will be younger people, perhaps, Barry, that are not aware that, in fact, you are a world living treasure. No, a living national treasure. That's Australian, not world. Okay, so you are a national Australian treasure. treasure. Uh, for, for lots of reasons. I mean, you know, if one reads the CV, it sort of it embarrasses pretty much most of us. You've had an incredibly successful, long-running um impactful career and first thing biggest impact was it the was it the writing of sleepers wake well in the long term i think that was the greatest impact um it didn't do me any good with my political colleagues and particularly it didn't do me any good with bob hawk there's something about me that irritated hawk and the result was that i was always kept back somewhat, but the uh, Sleepless Wake did have an extraordinary impact. I mean, it it had an impact on um, uh, Bill Gates, for example. Mm -hmm. Bill Gates came out to Australia specifically to see me, and I tried to get him to see uh, Hawke as Prime Minister and Keating as Treasurer, but they were too busy, Uh, and so I had Gates to myself. But the, the... oddest uh, reader, perhaps, was Dong Xiaoping. And um, I found it slightly hard to believe. I knew the book had been translated into Chinese, and I met the Chinese um, translators at the University of uh, uh, West China at Chengdu um, on one of my official visits over there when we were experimenting with... We were working with the Chinese about setting up a satellite with one of their one of the uh, Long March rockets. Um, But Dong Xiaoping read it, or at least, I find that slightly hard to believe, but his two daughters on separate occasions came to Australia and on separate occasions, some years between them, in each case said they particularly wanted to see me because their father had read the book and it had quite a significant impact on, uh, uh, on him and uh, the result was that, you know, it was very important to them to understand what we were doing. It had a big impact in Korea. <laughs> it was a very, very big success um, in Korea. But there are other countries as well. Uh, um, Ireland, for example, John Bruton, who was the, uh, the Premier, the, the Taoiseach over there at the time, he was a great enthusiast, and I went over to talk to his ministers and then the odd thing was that, um, uh, you know, they had that phenomenon that they called the Celtic Tiger, and it, yes. it, it didn't last because later on you had a, the next generation of uh, political leaders over there. I'm not talking about the presidents who are pretty good, mm. but at the lower level were very corrupt. And, and in effect, they allowed... Because the labour costs were cheaper in Ireland than anything else, they allowed really Europe to take over yep. 
and the initiative of what they were doing in Ireland themselves simply disappeared. That they they were simply a cheap assembly place in the same way that yes. say Malaysia is a cheap assembly place for international companies. So I introduced Freddie to you a little earlier. So Freddie, of course, is producing the, the podcast for us. So thanks, Freddie. Uh, I said to Freddie before you arrived, um, Sleepers Wake, you know what, Freddie? I reckon at least a million people would have read it, but I've underestimated that by some number, I would imagine. Well, I have no idea, no idea what <laughs> what the sales were in China because um, – but it may well be – because they don't sign the they, – they're not part of the international – uh, copyright convention. I deeply regret to say, mm. uh, but um, <laughs> uh, but it, it would have sold a lot if if the word was out. Yeah. That I mean, I've got the, the Ding Xiaoping had read it. That's right. That was enough, wasn't it? <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, and uh, anyway, the point was that it it the thing was it was recognizing the fact that uh, the whole nature of the labour force was going to change, and in particular, of course. With the ageing of the population and the fact that the number of the total proportion of the, of the population is contracting as a percentage, not in absolute numbers, but contracting as a percentage, mm-hmm. and uh, that was something that uh, they hadn't really thought through. One of the most important things that I did, I think, was uh, this was in the later part after I'd been defenestrated Minister, I um, as science, uh, minister of science and technology. That's right. Yep, that's right. And well, because what had happened was that back in in the nineteen ninety um, uh, nineteen ninety election, Victoria, following the collapse of the Pyramid Building Society, yes. yep. there was a big swing against Labor in this state. Yep, and by nineteen ninety, the factions were in very strong position within the caucus. And it meant that factional uh, allegiances really determined whether you were in or out okay. as a minister. Oh, oh, but this you're a federal minister, but you're saying that the state factions influenced what happened at the Absolutely. federal. Absolutely. So that if you if you instead of having uh, instead of having uh, say uh, twenty members of the Labor Party from Victoria in in the in the federal caucus, yep, yep. in the caucus, yep. Yep, that's reduced to uh, twelve. Then it means you're likely to have twelve supporters, and they say, "Oh well, Victoria's quota of ministers will have to fall, and there'll have to be more positions found in New South Wales and Queensland." So that's exactly what one of the factors that happened. So the former ad man uh, and a, a long-term friend and compadre of yours, Philip Adams. Yep. Uh, he said, no one has ever thought longer, harder and deeper about this country than, of course, your good self, Barry. So when you reflect on Sleeper's Wake, the core proposition of the book um, and and how it relates to Australia today, can you discuss that a little? Well, it was really, the, there was a kind of an assumption, which was I thought always flawed, to think that um, uh, the most important area of growth uh, in the economy would be in manufacturing because there was a point at one stage in Australia when 27% of our labour force was involved in manufacturing one way or another. And I knew that, or I certainly worked out, that this was completely fallacious, that what was going to happen with the new industrial technique, with the new production techniques that were being developed, 
uh, you are going to find mass production would mean the use of machinery which produced on a huge scale mm. rather than craft work, you know, working yeah. where you had 15 people working on a car. Yeah. You'd have two or three people working on a car yeah. and the production would be higher. And so uh, whereas there were a number of people in the, in the caucus who were convinced Having a pop, having twenty seven percent of the labour force in manufacturing, that figure would grow. And I said, no, it will contract. Right. And of course, it's contracted from twenty seven percent of the population of the working uh, for, of the workforce, which it was at the moment. The figure is six point six. Yeah. Now, um, what that means is that that changed the whole nature of employment changed the whole nature of the trade union movement. See, once upon a time, you'd have had a 1,000 people under the one roof, yep. and they'd all start at the same time, finished at the same time, clocked on, clocked off, all, pay, all paid their union dues. Yep. Now those factories have gone. Now, you see, you'd have to say one of the biggest elements of the labour force is what we call the bedpan economy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of the people, if you think of areas like AIDS care, health generally, support, and you say, and you say, what's the typical trade unionist now? And the typical trade unionist is a woman mm-hmm. yep. who's either a teacher, yes, yes, or a nurse, or works in a shop, and works per- in retail. Yeah, and percentage of workforce now would be thirty. Oh, absolutely. Well, no, probably more. Yeah. Probably more. And it's not an accident. If you look at the officials, if you if you look at the officials, say of the ACTU, you don't find heavy, heavy guys who wear overalls and are tattooed True. all over. You've got Michelle O'Neill yeah. and Sally McManus. Yes, yes. Now that's not an accident that you've got two articulate, smart, savvy women running the show because they reflect what the labour force is now. So Sleepers Wake was saying the, the industrial base of Australia is about to change. It's going to change, absolutely. And that the biggest, the biggest growth areas will be in, first of all, in that personal care area. I mean, to take a, uh, uh, an obvious example, I mean, if you compare the number of hairdressers compared to the number of steel workers, uh, you know, who would you expect to be the bigger number? Well, it's hairdressers. It, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so because anything that involves a personal service, so or you know, if you say, are more people employed in in uh, manufacturing shirts or in washing and ironing them? Yeah, well, well no, it's the washing and ironing. There's them. not a lot of shirt manufacturing going on, is there? Exactly, exactly. But it, in fact, it's the service related mm-hmm. yes. to the production. That's the important thing. So Sleepers Wake is 40 years ago, I think, Barry? Oh, yes, yeah. 1982, uh, 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 just before we came into office. So 83, you came into office uh, yep. under Hawke. Yep. What was that book, 31 Days to Power? It was 31 days between when Hayden said Hayden was gone and Hawke came in. 31 days later, he was PM? Oh, I think it was probably even less than that. Yeah. I mean, it was an extraordinary... Yeah. It was an extraordinary event. Yeah, incredible. And um, But it was... Uh, it was, it was, it, first of all, I mean, it, it was, you could see the inevitability of it in a way. Hawke had that astonishing appeal 
to the electorate. He, but he had an amazing capacity to be able to get a complex idea and project it. Yes. He was really remarkable there. I mean, he had, as we know, um, one or two personal flaws, but in a curious way, it really, it really didn't matter. Uh-huh. And people said, oh, yes, he's got a bit of an alcohol problem. But, he, stopped, know, he stopped the booze when he was the, the PM? Like, but he, he didn't drink yeah. while he was Prime Minister. That's and right. he yeah. drank in a very moderate way when he ceased to be Prime Minister. Mm. But I'd have to say of Hawke, as I say, we didn't have a very comfortable relationship, but I have never seen anyone who could master a brief right. the way he could. His capacity to master a brief was astonishing. So he had a powerful intellect then, Barry. He had very powerful intellect, and he was—I mean—he was better than better than anyone okay. in his capacity to do it because it was so astonishing. You—you'd you, come into a, a cabinet committee around budget time, and there might be, you know, three or four hundred pages in front of him, and somebody would ask a question quite out of left field, yep. and. <laughs> You'd come up with an answer, and Hawke would say, "That's all right. <laughs> Look at page three twenty-seven. Yeah. And, and that's intimidating def- as well as impressive. It was a definite. Oh no, it was it was it was simply astonishing. Yeah, uh, the way the way he operated. So forty years later, um, after Sleepers Wake, yeah, um, and after Hawke came in in eighty-three, forty years later, we have, there's a there's a book here. What is to be done? Yep. Why why did you title the book What Is to Be Done? Well, originally I was thinking of simply calling it, you know, Sleepers Wake Now or Updated, yes. and my publisher said, no, 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 you've got to be more confrontational. And in fact, uh, that's a title that's been used by a number of writers, used by uh, Tolstoy, uh, but most famously used by Lenin. But Lenin had a question mark. I didn't have a question mark. I was more, uh, more categorical uh, yeah. in yeah. what I said. Because the... What I was trying to say in this is that there are several factors that we haven't completely come to terms with that will change the whole nature of the labour force. And one, of course, is the, is the ageing of the population. Yep. Now, the point is that I... Uh, uh, I mean, when you reflect um, old farts like me uh, in their 90s... Uh, turned 90 at the end of last year. Um, But we're now quite a significant percentage of the population. And in that last decade of life, Mm. are going to be increasingly expensive. You know, and I I noticed, I, you know, I had a couple of uh, medical procedures, not last year, but the year before. And when I looked at the, uh, (laughs) when I looked at the return that came from, uh, from from uh, Medibank, I was sort of stunned by the by the figure involved. Yeah. And the point is that you've you've got that problem. If you've if the labour force is contracting as a percentage of the whole, it means that the taxations that's going to be needed to support people who are in their eighties, nineties, and so on is very considerable. Yeah. So that we haven't faced up the taxation question. We haven't. And we have not, and the taxation question is, is enormous. This has been front and centre for a decade, though, has it not, Barry, as in taxation reform, probably a little more. Henry well, Report? The, but there's a, a particular reason for it, and that is that 
If you think of the changing nature of the political scene, it's partly because in the last decades you've had a very dramatic transformation of the distribution of wealth and power. Now, um, if we had a if we had a whiteboard, I could uh, I could dem- and and texture colours I could demonstrate. But just use your imagination for a minute. Back in the days, say of Curtin and Chifley, uh, if you were really looking at the distribution of wealth, uh, it would be fair enough to draw it something like a pyramid, yeah, in which you had a quite a sharp base, and then at the bottom, because uh, as you went down and down and down. That's where more and more people are. Now, if you're looking at the distribution of, of wealth and power, mm-hmm. it's shaped more like a lozenge yes. or like a diamond. Yes. So that the largest number of people are in the middle. And, of course, a lot of those people in the middle aspire to be in that top, top. part. Yep. And they don't really identify with the people who are below them. And so the result is that if you're talking about uh, increasing taxation, uh, you've got to be very careful how you handle it because people will say, oh, you know, here I am in the middle. Here I am in the middle. And the last thing I want to do is to have to pay more tax to look after people who haven't been as successful in aspiration as I've been. So are you... you Is it as simple as this then, Barry, that we're still managed, we're still managed as if it's a triangle when in fact it's a diamond? I think something like that. Right. Something like that. And that that means that the whole nature, for example, of the Labor Party has changed. So in other words, we're increasingly now, if you're going to win those seats in the middle, that's where you've got to make your your appeal. And... um, uh, so far, I mean, the, the the new government, I think, has done extremely well. Very good front bench, and they've uh, avoided serious errors. But right now, they haven't quite come to terms with the with the uh, taxation question. What they may have to do, because they're a bit tied up in knots about the whole idea of saying, well, we promised we wouldn't change it. It might be that they need to follow the example of John Howard. You remember Howard, when Howard was elected in 96, he said, no, 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 there won't be a GST. We yeah. won't introduce yeah. GSP. Then he became convinced that you really needed that revenue that you could get from GST. And so what he did was to call an early election yes. and say, things have changed and I've got to, this is not a popular policy I think we've got to do it. Let's push it. In fact, when you look back, he did lose quite a few votes, but he won the election yep. and he won the principle of it. Indeed. And while I'm very critical of Howard in a whole number of ways, that was one thing I thought Howard handled very well. The other one, of course, was about Guns. You know, the gun question down at yep. Port Arthur, but he was particularly good on, on that. And I think that's the way to go. You've got to get a new mandate. Yes. And if you explain it properly and say, look, we've really got to think in the longer term, and in particular this is where the ageing, we've got to think of your mother, mm. your grandmother, yeah. maybe even your great-grandmother. Yeah. Make sure that they're... 
and they can't live on air. They've got to have support, and that support's expensive, and, it's, and if it's going to be of a very high standard, it'll cost a mozza. Well, the current government is potentially in a position to go to the next election um, saying, OK, here's what we need to do. They're potentially in a, in a strong enough position to do that, Barry. Well, they might be, but I think they need to do it probably earlier rather than yes. later. yep, I understand. And I think just as uh, Kevin Rudd lost the opportunity, I think, I think if Rudd had moved earlier on climate change and called that early election in 2009, I think, you know, the history of the last couple of decades would have changed quite dramatically. So let's talk about the economy. So... Yep. Um, there's a lot of talk about the the fourth industrial revolution yep. and you know the digitization, the sharing yep. economy, etc. Et so when you think about um, what is to be done, is part of that how do we reshape our economy? Well, I mean, we we are reshaping our economy in terms of where people are actually employed. I mean, if you look at the most recent uh, statistics, you can see that so far as employment's concerned. See, the, the total number of people employed in manufacturing is 6.6%. The total number of people employed in mining is only 1.4%. A fair bit of the income. And, and, and we're not starving, but agriculture has gone through a bad time recently with floods and fire and all the rest. But, you know, the, the figure in agriculture is only 3 or 4%. But essentially, you see, we... Uh, the overwhelming majority of people are now employed in professional services uh, and they're also employed in, in the information economy. Yes. And that's, we, we haven't sort of sufficiently recognised that, but that's something that I predicted accurately. I wasn't alone in it, but I was certainly one of the very early figures in that area. And I, I think we're, because we've got a strong research base I think we can do. I think we can do extremely well. I mean, if you take medical technology, yes. if you take the production of vaccines, for example, if you take the production of things like the bionic ear with very uh, high unit cost, very high unit cost, we can we can do really pretty well. Yeah, but there are a whole number of things that we we haven't quite thought through the implications of of the transformation away from um, a very heavy emphasis and over-emphasis, inevitably, on the things that produce the problems associated with climate change. And, I mean, if you think of the, I've called it somewhere, the, 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 four, uh, the four Cs, I think, uh, cities, cows, yes. concrete... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because all these all these things are very much related Producers to of, yep, and and and, um, and, and I, th- I said coal. I think yeah, they're the they're the main the main things. Mm-hmm. We've got to move away from that, and the difficulty is that we still haven't quite because at the moment, because there's such a tremendous demand for coal, and we think oh we can't. We can't lose the opportunity to 15% sell. 15% of the GDP when the or prices, something? When the prices are up there. Yeah, yeah. But we've, we've got to be thinking about part of the problem that is about Australia is uh, our urban organisation. So if you reflect, and this relates to the whole question of population, of course it tied in with the ageing thing, uh-huh, which I've yep. been yes. banging on about. You think 
See, if you ask a question, you said, what's the population of Great Britain? And the answer is... 60-something? Uh, 67 million. Yep. And then ask the second question, which is bigger, Victoria or Great Britain? Okay, and the answer's answer going to be... Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> and then you say, um, uh, in Great Britain, how many cities with, with a population of more than a million? And the answer is two. Yeah, Birmingham. Birmingham and London. Yep. Of course, London's is pretty Mega. special. A London, but only two. Mm. In Australia, we've got two cities with five million. Yes. Two cities with two million. Yes. And one city with one million. So we're a much more urbanised society. So the result is that if you, if you think you can get people out of their cars, think again. And you see, even things that look pretty sensible, like um, uh, you know what the Andrews government has done about getting rid of, uh, of you know railway level crossings and so on, they say, "Oh, it's wonderful." Now, but they've never asked the question: Will this encourage the use of more vehicles, <laughs> That's right. or fewer? Well, actually. More, well, yeah. You build, well, right. you, yeah. I mean, what is it they say about freeways and pokies? Yeah. The, you, the, you, the more you have, the more they get used. Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. So, globalization, yeah. Post-pandemic world globalization. There does appear to be, let's call it a trend that is against globalization. Um, what did I read recently? Nearshoring, so potentially bringing manufacturing back to both home base and near base. Well, I. <laughs> I'd like to think that that was possible, but you see, but but think again of what you mean by by manufacturing. Mm. You see, if you're talking about the manufacturing of vaccines, for example, I am terrific. Yeah, um, uh, manufacturing of motor vehicles. Well, maybe, but you still have to look at an economic, uh, at an appropriate economic model. I mean, it's extraordinary when you reflect that. Um, at one stage, we had eight motor vehicle manufacturers, not really manufacturers, really assemblers. Assemblers, yeah. You had eight in Australia. Yeah. In the United States, you had three. And you think, well, there's got to be something wrong with that. There's so we had three the, in the United States, we've got eight. We had the Europeans and we had the Asians and we had the Americans at one period, I assume. Exactly. Right. Is it, and believe it on Ford, you know, Ford was actually owned by Ford Canada. People don't know that. No, it was, I didn't know it was that. owned by Ford Canada, not even ah. not even uh, the US one. And, it, and you see, if you look at a city like I can't help thinking from time to time about my birthplace, which is Geelong. And see, there would have been a period when you look back and said, ah, Geelong, it's synonymous. With the Ford Motor Company, it's the biggest employer. It's yeah. oh, oh God, well never. Shell. You know, we could never survive if Ford were closed down. Well, it did close down, and what's happened? It's thriving. Its population's <laughs> gone up four times. Yeah, exactly. And and the biggest employer is Deakin University yeah. by far. Yeah, very interesting. You you, you may be interested to um, know that there is a uh, entrepreneur in Melbourne right now building electric motorbikes. And yeah. it's a and it's doing it's a combination of assembling parts that are coming from other parts yeah. of the world, but also um, some stuff that he has built from scratch. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting, isn't it? I wanted, oh, to, no. I wanted to ask you about nuclear. So um, 
the notion of the use of nuclear power in Australia, it, it, it's more on the agenda now than maybe it's been for a long time because at least you can say that word and you don't feel like you're going to, you know, be you know, kicked out from a dinner party. What do you think? Well, I think, I think the economics are against it. Right. The economics are against it. See, one of the factors that has really put a dampener um, on it in, in Europe has been when they started planning nuclear, uh, when they started thinking about nuclear plants, uh, they never thought about the cost of decommissioning. And in fact, you find that when they started decommissioning um, atomic plants in, in Britain, they found that the decommissioning cost was greater than the cost of ever constructing them. Uh, part of the difficulty is, I mean, I, I don't have an ideological hang-up about uh, yes. nuclear, and in some ways if I had to choose between having a new coal-powered right. and nuclear... That's where I'm going. I think I'd, think I'd rather have, have nuclear. But I can see that in a way... Um, I mean, there's been talk about the uh, the idea of having locally generated uh, uh, system, and instead of having a national grid, you have a disaggregated, yes. localized grid and a, and a small. Well, it's certainly worth worth having a look at. But I think where there've been uh, uh, serious investigations of it, and they had one in South Australia. Uh, in the end, they said, look, economically, it just doesn't stack up. But it is odd. Well, there's a sense in Australia that we haven't got our energy, you know, our energy policy and our energy resource, and it, 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 there's a sense that we haven't got it right. Is that fair? I mean, it, it does seem pretty crazy that, you know, prices are going up to the level that they are and there, there isn't sort of ease of the, of the access of energy. Oh, well, I think, look, I think um, have a look at what, Ross Garlow's written on this, and I think he's done a pretty good analysis about it all. You've got a situation now where our local producers say we're part of the global scene. Because we're part of the global scene, if there's an expansion internationally, right. well, we've got to be part of it, you see. Right. And they're now pretty dark, and the financial reviews are a bit dark, so, oh, we don't want... The Commonwealth government telling us what we can do, bringing up subjects like ethics, which are so distasteful, uh, and um, so the result is that they're uh, uh, they they really do want to have their, their their cake and eat it too. They they they're exploiting the fact that with the horrors of Putin and Ukraine and what's happened, the, the tragedy going on in Europe, it's it's a Comparatively short-term phenomenon, uh, which is which is really pretty terrible, yeah. and um, but and terrible also because um, it the, the idea of international cooperation of of working out problems in a rational kind of way appears to be elusive. Right. It's now storylines it, so, it, or narratives. And, and that's right. And, yeah. and so you've got exactly, you've got that kind of dreadful period you had at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. And that's awful. And it's nothing to do with communism. It's really just nationalism in its worst form. Yeah. And, 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 and contempt for the other. Right. So, so 
I didn't want to use the word crisis, energy crisis, because it's like it's a it's a well, word. I think it is a crisis. Okay. It is a crisis. Okay. So then, and, and the only thing that was going for it, the one thing to be said for climate change, uh, is that um, uh, you see, it, if the winter in in yeah. had been a really acute one mm. uh, in Europe, there might have been many many thousands of deaths. So it'd be just absolutely awful. And but the political implications of that. Are, are acute. Right. So do you think that um, us humans, do you think we like to catastrophize things? We like to think that there is always, there's always the next crisis around the corner and we, and we overplay it? No, I don't. I, I, no, I've, I don't. Look, the point is um, optimism, I think, is hardwired into us and it's the only way to live. You can't, I mean, we, we all know how we will finish up, but in the interim, we've got to make the most of it. We've got to make, we've got to make life absolutely worth living, not just for ourselves but for others. So I think the catastrophist approach doesn't really occur, but what I feel very dark about is the fact that uh, the Trump phenomenon, for example... Uh, was particularly horrible because uh, what they were... The emphasis that Trump made so often was to say, you see that guy walking down the street? He hates you. If he's got a chance, he'll kill you. You'd better get a gun of your own. That's the only way to protect yourself. And I'm the only one who can speak out and recognise the threat you're under. And... As a citizen, you might say, well, I don't think you're under... Oh, you are under threat. You don't realise what a terrible threat you're so under. So if I heard you describe that as Nixon, as a Nixon... Nixon no, 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 Trump. 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 But, didn't, but did you not say that Nixon sort of started the notion of there's us and there's them, or not? No, I never mentioned Nixon, but I couldn't... Oh. I did in the book. Okay, in the book. Uh, in the, at which I strongly urge people to read. But the... Um, Same. No, the... Well, I think what happened was that back in the 19... Uh, in the 1960s, after after Johnson got through the civil rights yes. legislation, then the Nixon strategy, which Pat Robertson worked out, the Nixon strategy was to say to those uh, old Confederate states, look, it's about time we revive the Civil War. <laughs> and if you revive the Civil War, yep. you can turn... You can turn those southern states, which used to uniformly vote Democrat, to voting Republican, and so it was the and they did and they have yeah. um, ever since. Well, there are a few exceptions, like Virginia, because of the and indeed Georgia, uh, are starting to change. Yes, yes it is. So um, I wanted to just throw some things at you um, and just get you to comment um, or tell us a story. Education, what needs to be done? We, there needs to be more emphasis on creativity. Um, the the we don't really uh, and and in particular, what I'm very concerned about is that in Australia we've got the most segmented education system. No, there there are in the OECD we've got the fourth most segmented education system. Believe it or not, worse than Britain. Uh. Chile is pretty bad. Nor uh, the Netherlands is pretty bad. Ireland is pretty bad. But in fact, 
if you look at the differentiation between the range of skills, the range of opportunities, the range of facilities that you have in, in, in private schools which have very significant public funding and the poorest of the, of the schools, particularly in areas where you've got a high ethnic community, mm. that's, that's a real problem. Are they ever going to tackle that? Are we ever it, going to tackle that? Again, you can only tackle it, you can only tackle with political will yeah. and prepared to take on powerful enemies. Indeed. And it, it, it will require a heroic... And I, the thing that concerns me about education in Victoria, compared to a number of other states, there's less emphasis on creativity in this state. You see, if you take the state of music, for example, mm. in Queensland, which we think of as... Well, not Victoria. We, but but <laughs> and you'd be the right. thing about Queensland is every kid in Queensland at a state school has access to a musical instrument. Mm -hmm. And so the result is that they learn to master yeah, great. Uh, a, an instrument. And you might say, oh, that doesn't get you a job as a plumber. No, but it gives you confidence. Totally. And you can, you can communicate, you can you work with others, you, you work in a group and so on. It's tremendously important. And it's, you know, that we've got a wonderful institution down here, which I hope you will do a program on, uh, the Australian National Academy of Music. Absolutely outstanding. And it's located in, located in Melbourne. But of the students, more than half are from Queensland. <laughs> And they've, and they've got the Olympics in 1938. Because, <laughs> because at their school, they develop a level. They've got their own school orchestra. Or they've got their yeah, own, great. And so they're opera operating at a yeah. very superior level. I get it. So what you're saying is you give every kid the opportunity to play music yeah. and then you never know where that might end up yeah. you know, later on. Or exposure to a foreign language. Yeah. Yes. So we are, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more than that. Yeah. So it's from STEM to STEEAM, I think, is the, yeah. is the clear, well, that's, yeah. the, that's yeah. the, the headline. The A, of course, being for, broadly speaking, for arts. Speaking of arts, um, 50 years ago, you and others were responsible for starting the Australian Film School. Yep. And, um, and now... Which you now chair with you, distinction. You, well, you were the initial chair, so that's... And it's a, it's a thrill for me to be sitting in that chair where you've been, Barry. Yep. Um, so 50 years down the track, the, the film school, it's designed to tell Australian stories. Do we do that well enough? Oh, well, look, I, look, first of all, I think... The, we hadn't quite expected, uh, you know, the, the dramatic way in which um, attendance, at c cinema attendance, would change. That more and more now people would be downloading material, um, and of course the thing we hadn't expected, we were we were more we were more successful than we really expected because you had people like say Phil Noyce yes. who were going off and taking a role internationally. Yep. And uh, I was glad to see Phil got an AO the, uh, uh, the other day. And when I was looking for his, um, his email address, which I couldn't find, but he's now, of course, living in North America. And, and so the result is that, in a way, this is where the fact that we, we, we belong to the English-speaking world up to a point, yeah. um, it means that um, uh, it's very easy for us to communicate in that bigger world stage. So we've got people right. who've got 
not only work well here, but done wonderful work in Britain and wonderful work in America it, as well. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? So the, the after school, which is it's a federal school, federal government. Yeah. Um, and look, they pay to be there as well, so it's not fully funded. Oh, yeah. Um, but as a result, they get themselves trained to such a level that they can take on the world. That's right. And not necessarily just tell Australian stories. Yeah. But that's not a bad thing. And you hope that yes, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll hope they'll, they'll come back. Yeah. But... Um, they're always very. They have very strong and very, very warm, very touching memories of how important school was yep. in there yep. at that stage of their development. Yeah. Uh, as I said, this is Freddie. So Freddie is uh, producing um, Good One Productions. So uh, Freddie, if you have a question for Barry, that would be great. Um, if not, that's okay too. Uh, thanks, Russ, um, and thank you, Barry. Um, I saw something uh, yesterday or maybe two days ago uh, about um, ChatGBT uh, and AI system being incorporated into Microsoft's uh, Teams mm. uh, platform. Uh, and one of the features it listed would be instantaneous translation. Um, and hearing you speak today as well uh, is making me think that uh, as we become increasingly more digital and the barriers between uh, languages and you know, international communities really dissipates um, and the cost becomes zero, really. Uh, does, uh, does our sense of Australia intensify as it, you know, goes into flux um, or does uh, the idea of a nation dissipate completely? I think there's a real possibility that that sense of individuality will disappear and that uh, the sheer ease of using uh, the the uh, uh, using the tool uh, means that you can get any answer that you want within seconds with very little effort. And it, what it represents, in a sense, is the collective wisdom of the ages. Yeah. And there's a very interesting piece a few weeks ago in the London Review of Books. And in it, um, a guy was writing about the fact that... Uh, he asked, uh, uh, he asked the chat GPT thing about a thing about health policy, the sort of thing you might expect to find in a in a in an examination paper, and he just keyed in the key uh, and came out with an answer. Now it wasn't perhaps very profound, but it was pretty good. It yeah. was, uh, as they said, how can you tell the difference between the writing of a student and the writing that's been generated. And they say, well, the writing has been generated by the software is better. And that's that's the way you can, that's the way you can tell the difference. But it means that there's no uh, it's it's not as if you say, say, look, this is this is the collective thing about how you set out priorities. You don't have to think for yourself. You've got that answer there within a few minutes. Yeah. It's a dilemma and we've got to do a bit of Maybe I'd better write another book about it. Yeah. But it's a very serious implication. There, there is very serious implications. We, we had some fun the other day suggesting that the, the Poet Laureate, so Australia's getting a Poet Laureate, yep. that in fact the Poet Laureate should be ChatGPT. <laughs> That'd be an easy way out. <laughs> I know, right? Barry, it's been fantastic speaking to you. We uh, Well, I really appreciate it. I know Freddie will as well, and I know the listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy every moment. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thanks, Russ. That's Fred.